Okay, welcome to episode one of my podcast for uh, study notes for the Alberta Health Services uh, EMS protocols. Since this is episode one, it might be a little bit all over the place, but I have some notes and there's some key things that I want to um, go over. The ACS protocol in general is pretty straightforward, so I'm going to start with that and then I'll kind of go into the extra notes that I put down from some textbooks that I have, as well as the AHS uh, notes. So the ACS protocol, um, super simple. It starts out just like every other protocol standard approach and ongoing assessment. Um, and then just like in many other protocols, administer oxygen and maintain an SpO2 greater than or equal to 94%. Um, we want to give acetosalicylic acid, 160 milligrams PO, if not previously administered for this episode to a total maximum of 160 milligrams per 24 hour period. Um, we want to rapidly obtain a 12 lead ECG and obtain a 15 lead if indicated and 15 lead would be indicated um, anytime you see um, elevation or anything weird really in the 2-3 AVF segment or in the inferior leads. Um, you want to establish continuous cardiac monitoring and establish vascular access. So continuous cardiac monitoring, that just means uh, throw your life pack on the back of the stretcher or on the stretcher and make sure that you bring it into the hospital with you. If you have active chest pain, you never want to not have a monitor um, and see what's going on with your patient. Um, vascular access, we want to stay away from the right arm. That's just because the right arm is sometimes used um, in the cath lab. So we want to try and get vascular access on the left arm of the patient. Um, and best practice is two IVs according to the notes in the AHS uh, protocols. Um, then the next box is dysrhythmia. Um, if there is a dysrhythmia, it just uh, refers you to the appropriate adult dysrhythmia protocol. Um, if there's no dysrhythmia, then it kicks you back into um, this pretty linear protocol. Um, it asks you next if a STEMI is suspected. If a STEMI is sus suspected, you treat concurrently with the adult STEMI reperfusion strategy protocol. And then next, systolic BP less than 90 millimoles of mercury, and you treat that concurrently with the adult shock, shock protocol. Um, all of those protocols, hopefully, um, eventually I'll have um, each one a different podcast for it, so you can just refer to those um, separately. But for now, we're just going to stick to the ACS protocol. Um, after you look at the systolic BP less than 90 millimoles of mercury, it uh, kicks you down into um, a PCP-ACP uh, like split for nitroglycerin. Um, so I'm just going to go over the ACP one. Um, so ACPs can give nitroglycerin 0.4 milligrams sublingual every five minutes as needed. So there's no max um, and you want to obtain serial 12 lead ECGs every 15 minutes. Uh, to look for evolution of ECG changes. Um, and that's super important. I actually read in Tittinale's just uh, the facts for emergency medicine that um, they recommend every 10 minutes for serial ECGs. And that's one of the most important things that uh, you can do uh, in the emergency medicine setting is make sure that you're obtaining those serial ECGs. And just from my practice, I know that that's something that we can definitely improve on a lot of the time when uh, we're giving bedside report um, or even a triage, if we've been with our patient for uh, greater than like 30 minutes, we will only have a couple ECGs and um, yeah, that's something that we can do better. Uh, after that, then you can consider morphine 2.5 milligrams, slow IV push or intraosseous every 15, or sorry, every five minutes 
as needed um, after three sprays of nitroglycerin have been administered. So this is um, post your three, three sprays of nitro um, and you can continue giving your nitro and give morphine as well if you are uh, still having chest pain. If your transport time is greater than 30 minutes, um, you can consider a nitroglycerin patch which delivers nitro at 0.8 milligrams per hour. Um, and uh, you want to make sure you place that patch on the left upper chest of the patient in an easily visible area and just make sure you write the date and time applied uh, that you applied the patch and ensure that hospital staff are aware of the nitroglycerin patch obviously that way they're not double dosing their patient with nitro um, and that's a PCP and ACP skill and then uh, finally um, as an ACP we can consider the nitroglycerin infusion IV or IO our starting dose is 20 micrograms per minute and you increase by 10 micrograms per minute every five minutes to a maximum of 200 micrograms per minute. And I'll just quickly touch on um, the nitroglycerin infusion chart. Um, it's located in the pharmacology tab of your protocols, but um, in order to mix up nitroglycerin uh, for an infusion in an ACS patient, you want to add 15 milligrams, or that's 15,000 micrograms. And since we're dealing with micrograms, I'll just say 15,000 micrograms from now on, um, into a 250 mil bag of D5W for a concentration of 60 micrograms per mil. So um, 250 goes into 15,000, so 250 milliliters of D5W goes into 15,000 uh, micrograms 60 times and that works out great because that means that we'll have a um, dose that's exactly proportionate to our uh, drip rate in mils per hour or our drops per minute so that's like the easiest way to memorize it your drops per minute is your dose rate um, in micrograms per minute so um, it's a one-to-one -one ratio of micrograms to drops when you're using a 60 drop set so um, starting with our initial dose of 20 micrograms per minute, um, our drops per minute minute will also be 20 when you have that concentration of 15 milligrams or 15,000 micrograms in a 250 mil D5W concentration. Um, if you want to upgrade uh, your drops by um, another 10, for example, you would increase your drip rate uh, by 10 and that would increase your, your micrograms per minute by 10 as well. And that goes all the way up to our maximum dose of 200 micrograms per minute, and of course you're titrating to effect. And while we're on the topic of drugs, I guess I can just go over um, the other two drugs that are under this, uh, or three drugs, I guess, um, if you include the nitroglycerin sublingual. So acetylsalicylic acid is the first uh, drug that we give. And um, I remember when I got hired on with Edmonton and a cardiologist came and talked to us and he said something that was pretty mind blowing to me. He said in the early phases of um, any ACS setting, ASA is one of the most important things that we can do for a patient in or outside of the emergency department. Um, and it actually has uh, the best effect when uh, the, throm uh, the thrombus is forming. So. Um, we want to give ASA uh, really fast in the setting of uh, a suspected ACS patient. Um, so we want to give the 160 milligrams uh, chewed PO, and uh, that's every 24-hour period, and we don't repeat the dose. Our contraindications are hypersensitivity to ASA, an active GI bleed, or uh, asthma asthmatic with past history of sensitivity to ASA or NSAIDs. Um, so 
it just diminishes platelet aggregation and thrombus formation and enlargement in ACS. Um, ASA must be administered even when the patient states that they have already taken their prescribed daily dose and is currently taking blood thinners. So if they're on like Plavix or Warfarin, um, you still want to give the ASA dose just because it's so important in those early phases of an ACS setting. Um, if you can confirm the proper dose of ASA was administered on the advice of post-dispatch instructions or by first responders, uh, we're allowed to withhold further doses at that point. Um, and then you, we just want to notify receiving facilities of the full ASA uh, the patient received, obviously, just like any other drug that we give. For some weird reason, that's in the notes. Um, for nitro, um, our, we have our 0.4 milligram sublingual spray. Uh, Q5 minutes until uh, the BEP is less than 100 millimoles of mercury. Uh, we want to make sure that we have an IV in place before we give it. Um, our patch delivers it at 0.8 milligrams per hour. And uh, the contraindications, again, are just a systolic BP that bottoms out at that 100 millimoles of mercury. Um, if we have a right ventricular infarction and any patient taking phosphodiesterase inhibitors, that uh, involves mandatory online medical control. So we're not totally barred from it, but we do have to phone OLMC before we give it. And I'll just touch on that right ventricular infarction, mainly for uh, in case if there's any um, PCPs listening, because I didn't know this as a PCP, but... Um, I just knew like, okay, we can't give it an RBIs, but how do we diagnose RBIs? Um, an RBI is diagnosed by seeing a 15 lead and checking the V4R lead. So um, if you don't know how to do a 15 lead, uh, it's hard to show uh, via voice, but you can actually look in the, um, in the protocols that AHS gives us and it'll show you how to do a 15 lead and you have specific elevation in that V4R lead, and that's a definite nitro contraindication. The indication to do a 15 lead in the first place would be elevation in uh, 2, 3, and ABF, which are like the bottom left corners of your ECG 12 lead when you print them out. So those are your inferior leads. And then to look specifically into right ventricular infarctions, you want to do a 15 lead and look at that V4R lead. So. Um, and the, the idea behind giving nitro um, is two-pronged. It uh, dilates the uh, coronary arteries. Um, so it's, nitro is most effective in the angina phase of the uh, ACS. It's not super effective when you have a full block or you have a, a full-blown STEMI. But in the angina phase, um, it's, it's very, very effective. And that's why a lot of people are sent home and the, and the doctor will be like, okay, you have angina. Here's some nitro that you can take yourself at home that will reduce your pain. So it dilates those coronary arteries and it actually relaxes uh, your venous return uh, vasculature, which causes them to shrink. So that reduces your preload. And that kind of brings us back to the point of um, right ventricular infarction and why we don't want to give it. Um, if you have the right side of your heart, your right ventricles are infarcted, they're not working as well as they should. So a lot of their blood pumping is running off of the preload or the left having to pump blood all the way through your circulatory system and back into the right side of your heart. And then that preload is, is what's running that, um, that blood from the right side of your heart into um, your lungs. So the best uh, thing that you can do for these patients is not give them nitro, which would dump their preload. And, uh, and cause your heart to, to work even harder in that case. In most cases, um, it will cause your heart to work less hard um, in the case of it dilating your coronary vasculature. 
um, and the left side of your heart uh, having an easier time pumping into into that portion of your uh, venous system or your arterial system. Um, and then the final drug that we have is morphine, which is something that um, is very familiar to all of us. It's narcotic analgesic. Um, we do give like a half dose. I'd say most medics and most doses that I give are in the five milligram increment, but just remember in the ACS setting, we're giving 2.5 milligram slow IV push IO doses every five minutes, which so that's our regular like pain control cue times, um, to a total max of 15 milligrams. So that's easy to me memorize because we have to wait for our three sprays of nitro nitroglycerin and then we uh, can give 15 milligrams total after that. Um, which, oh, never mind, it's a 2.5 dose. So just ignore everything I just said. Um, yeah, 2.5 milligram dose uh, to a max of 15, so we can give six doses. Um, the contraindications are hypersensitivity to morphine, uh, just like every other drug, and the systolic BP less than 100 millimoles of mercury. Um, so again, that's uh, very similar to our nitro, um, which bottoms out at 100 millimoles of mercury as well. Um, and then just the, the notes that AHS has on morphine, um, the first one is it has vagotonic properties that can aggravate bradycardias. Uh, the next one is use with caution in the evidence or the presence of inferior right ventricular infarct due to the, a drop in preload. Um, so that's the same thing that I was just kind of going over um, with the RBIs and nitro. Um, use with caution in the evidence of uh, ETOH or drug intoxication just because it can amplify um, those effects and uh, cause respiratory uh, may cause respiratory depression and hypotension monitor vital signs closely post administration that's kind of a gimme and then the final one is uh, use of caution uh, in with other drugs that are sedatives and depressants just because um, it can amplify those effects as well okay so we've gone over um, pretty much the entire protocol I think I will just double check that there's no extra little side boxes um, safety considerations in the side boxes of the algorithm um, is the first one, systolic BP must remain greater than 100 millimoles of mercury to administer all forms of nitro, which again we've already gone over. Mandatory OMC prior to administering nitro in patients that have taken phosphodiesterase inhibitors and uh, the trade names of those can be Viagra, Sildenafil, Levitra, Vardenafil, Cialis, and Tadalafil. So lots of fills, uh, F-I-L. And the last, and I think Viagra and Levitra and Cialis are all um, pretty well known to most medics. Um, and then PCP nitro administration, we just have to remember that PCPs will withhold all forms of nitro. Um, if the computer generated 12 lead interpretation has any message in capital letters indicating STEMI, uh, so STEMI acute, MI suspected, ST elevation criteria met, etc., etc. The star, 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 acute MI uh, suspected, star, star, star. Um, and then patient safety considerations do not administer nitroglycerin sublingual concurrently with the nitroglycerin infusion, which I feel like that's also kind of obvious. Um, yeah, so I will go over just some extra research that I did in a textbook called Tintinale's Emergency Medicine, um, just the facts. And it's an awesome textbook if you haven't read it yet. I didn't get it from my school. I just had to buy it on my own from Amazon. But it's uh, one of the best textbooks I've read as far as just um, flat out research based evidence um, or evidence based practice 
and it has pretty much everything you'd see in an emergency setting and um, it all applies to EMS, which is awesome. So um, I'll just kind of break down what is ACS. So acute coronary syndrome is broken down into pretty much three, three parts. Um, each part uh, is kind of varying degrees of severity. So you have unstable and stable angina, um, which are kind of lumped in together. So unstable would be, um, I'll start with stable angina. Stable angina is like the guy, the 65 year old guy with a family history, it's kind of overweight that smokes. He goes outside and he's shoveling uh, snow off of his front uh, walk and he gets some chest pain. Um, and it'll be like the classic signs of chest pain. He'll look sweaty, he'll look crappy, and then he'll go inside, he'll sit down, um, he'll call 911, and then by the time you get there, he's feeling better. Um, an unstable angina patient would be that exact same guy that has the history, that has the nitro, that goes in um, and sits down and rests, and it doesn't get any better. Um, so that's the main differentiation there, but it's still an angina phase, so some blood is getting through. Um, then the ACS can break down into non-STEMI and STEMI. So um, non-STEMI will be kind of a uh, injury phase and STEMI will be like an infarct phase. So if you look at the three eyes of the ACS um, like levels, you have ischemia, which is um, kind of just a reduction in uh, oxygen and perfusion to the heart tissue. You have injury and then you have infarction. So injury is just like things are getting hurt and infarction is uh, things are dead and they'll never come back. So um, in the non-STEMI phase, you're looking at the injury of the ACS uh, world. And then in the STEMI phase, you're looking at infarction. So that's final, like uh, the finality of the process that's going on and your, your tissue death. Um, some notes that I wrote down on non-STEMI that I didn't realize for a long time um, I'll, again, I'll just, I'll just, uh, read what I wrote for, uh, a definition. So a, a non-STEMI is a partial occlusion of a coronary artery or a combination of, uh, coronary arterial spasm with a thrombus, uh, that can cause infarction or cell death at some of the heart tissue supplied by the artery. Um, and the ECG will show ST segment depression or dynamic T wave inversion. So again, um, dynamic T-wave inversion, I never really looked into that, and it's kind of interesting that um, it specifies dynamic. I never really noticed that in school, but I looked it up, and uh, obviously dynamic means changing, and uh, there's so that's the big difference between uh, T-wave inversion that's dynamic and T-wave inversion that's static or uh, doesn't change. And this is come, goes back to why I talked about why we wanna get 12 leads every 10 or 15 minutes, because it, it can differentiate between an active non-STEMI and an, and an active uh, or a non-active non-STEMI. So um, make sure we're getting those 12 leads often and definitely if you see some T-wave inversion or flip T-waves, uh, see if they're changing because that will be the main differentiation between someone that has a heart, um, an MI history um, that just has flip T-waves or someone that has an active MI going plus maybe an MI history in the past. Um, and this uh, indicates a fixed two waves seen after okay yeah and then uh, usually um, fixed T waves are seen present with pathological Q waves as well so um, pathological Q waves are just um, the first start of your QRS complex they'll be uh, deeper and uh, very obvious and those pathological Q waves point to a previous STEMI 
Um, and obviously, normally a patient will tell you, oh yeah, I had a heart attack in 2010. And then the final portion of our like ACS split up is a full-blown STEMI, which is what um, we are all familiar with. Um, it's the death of heart tissue due to a complete occlusion of a coronary artery. Obviously, this is the worst case scenario aside from death. Um, preventing blood flow to the heart, uh, presenting as an ST segment elevation in two or more contiguous leads. So what does two or more contiguous leads mean? It means leads that are next to each other. So V1 and V2, or V2 and V3, or V3 and V4, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I normally scan my 12 leads uh, starting at like V1 and then going in a contiguous order, just like um, a STEMI would develop, just because it'll be more obvious that way. Um, ST segment elevation should be uh, one millimeter in the limb leads. So the left side of the ECG, um, you only need one millimeter of elevation there. And the right side of the ECG, you only you need uh, two millimeters or more of ST elevation to be clinically significant in the EMS setting um, there. So, uh, and the, just the reason for that is that if you think about your chest leads, like the left side of your ECG, they're really close to the heart. So they're like a higher resolution image. So any sort of electrical activity is gonna be picked up and amplified more because they're closer. The sensors that you're placing on the patient's chest are closer. Thus, um, small little indiscretions may produce what looks like one millimeter of ST elevation um, when it's not really. So you need two millimeters to be clinically significant in your chest leads and then your limb leads because they're so far away, um, it's only one millimeter that you need to be clinically significant and that's just because um, any like small transgressions when you when you're placing the limb leads um, or you know different anatomy um, will be reflected less obviously in those um, in those leads that are farther away from the body. So, um, and I think that that's pretty much it. I could quickly go over like uh, thrombus versus um, like a thromboemboli or uh, like any of the other clot formation stuff. So um, blood obviously contains plasma, red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and clotting factor, and all are encased in it like an endothelial tissue of the vessel. So a thrombus is a clot that is stuck to the wall of a vessel, and when it breaks off and starts traveling through the bloodstream, that's when you get a thromboemboli. So um, I think a lot of people, or I've heard a lot of people like switch those two around, so remember Thrombus is a clot that's stuck to the, to the vessel wall, and thromboemboli is a clot that is carried away by the flow of uh, blood. And um, normally, if you have it uh, getting carried away in venous blood, it will result in a, in a pulmonary embolism, just because the lungs act as a, a big like fishnet for thromboemboli. Um, they really narrow down in the, in the lung space, so um, yeah, you'll end up with like a venous pulmonary embolism. And then in the, if, if you get a thromboemboli in the arterial side, normally that'll result in a stroke or a heart attack. And uh, those are obviously also really bad. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, that's like the, the easy version of break, breakdown of ACS stuff. Um, then I'll get into, I'll, so I'll get into that Tintinelli's emergency medicine textbook and, and what it talks about um, just with pathophysiology of cardiovascular disease. Um, Something that it touched on that I never really realized um, when I was going through school was visceral versus somatic pain. Um, so I always remembered like V or visceral stent starts with a V, so that's vague, and somatic starts with an S, so that's specific. Okay, that's all I memorized for school, and then I moved on. 
but uh, what it says here was uh, was really neat for me, and it, it directly r relates into chest pain, which is pretty cool. So chest pain can be visceral or somatic. Visceral pain originates from the vessels or organs, enters the spinal cord at multiple levels, and is thus poorly described. Using terms such as heaviness or aching, somatic pain is uh, dermatomal from the parietal pleura or structures of the chest wall and can be more precisely described. So visceral, and I'd imagine that's why uh, visceral is V-I-S, is prob it's probably derived from the term vessels. And it makes sense that a visceral pain, um, and specifically like a ACS chest pain, would um, originate from the vessels and, and your, your like central nervous system has a hard time saying specifically where it's at. And that's why a visceral or really vague pain normally points to a higher chance of ACS. If someone says, my chest pain's right here, I can feel it for sure, it's in this exact little like circular box on my chest, um, that points away from an ACS cause. So, and that's something that you could say in your report. This pain is visceral, and I'm sure that uh, the doc or the nurse reading that, they'll be like, okay, well, that increases my index of suspicion that this patient is suffering from an ACS um, issue. So I thought that that was really interesting. Um, there's some other, like, really neat little facts in here that just kind of helped my assessment. Um, so up to a third of patients with acute myocardial infarctions uh, may not have chest pain. Um, so that's an important one, a third of patients with chest pain, but they may present with other ischemic uh, issues such as shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, shoulder or jaw pain, or palpitations, or in the setting of diabetics or females, they can just feel generally unwell. Um, so general malaise um, or, yeah, but pretty much what I learned when I was going to Edmonton in their recruit class, um, and this is kind of that same recruit class that was uh, put on in conjunction with a cardiologist. So I learned a ton of really awesome stuff. They had a saying that said, any pain from the teeth to the testicles um, needs a 12 lead. And really we should be using it as a diagnostic a lot more just because you get that odd patient, maybe even 1% of the time, um, that you shouldn't be walking out to the ambulance or having them carry their own bags. And then we do a 12 lead later on in the hallway and find out, oh, this person's having a huge jammer. That's not good. Um, yeah, that also kind of brings me to the next fact that Tentinelli's points out, and that's that only 50% of AMI patients will have a diagnostic ECG. So serial ECGs are imperative in the setting of uh, continued chest pain, and they recommend them every 10 minutes versus every 15 that AHS recommends through AHS EMS. Um, they have some studies here that give positive likelihood ratio for um, different signs and symptoms and if they will point to ACS or another cause. A positive likelihood ratio is um, something that's used in medicine as a rule of thumb to give a general idea of um, a percentage chance that a patient is suffering from a particular like cause. So it'll say, okay, if you have like uh, diaphoresis and chest pain, it has a positive likelihood with a specific um, percentage attached to it that, that uh, those symptoms will be tied to an acute coronary syndrome versus something else, which obviously um, there are a ton of conditions associated with chest pain that aren't necessarily ACS related. So 
Um, some of the life-threatening ones that we should always have on our differential diagnosis list are um, angina pectoris, um, massive pulmonary embolism, segmental pulmonary embolism, aortic dissection, pneumothorax, esophageal rupture, pericarditis, pneumonia, and uh, perforated, perforated peptic ulcer. All of those are life-threatening and they should be on the top of our diagnostic list and we should be actively working to rule them out. Um, I could go over um, the associated symptoms, but I'm not gonna just because I think it's gonna take too much time. Um, but we should always have those in the, in the forefront of our mind and uh, kind of be working to try to eliminate them if we can. Um, yeah, uh, other symptoms and signs that have this positive likelihood ratio attached to them. I'm just gonna go over here, but I have to pull up the likelihood ratios, so they are. Okay, so things that will um, decrease the likelihood of an acute myocardial infarction. So the first one and the, the number one uh, this is this will reduce the the likelihood of an uh, an acute myocardial infarction the most. This is the top of the list. Um, if if this patient says this, it's gonna reduce the chances of an uh, of the, that your patient is having an ACS event by thirty percent, I believe. Yeah, by thirty percent. Um, so it's described as pleuritic. What is pleuritic? That's uh, pain in the pleurisy or the sac that surrounds the lung. And that's um, the, when you ask your patient, if you take a deep breath, does it make the pain worse? If they say yes, that decreases it by 30%. Of course, AHS protocols, it's 25% of patients will still be having an AMI. It doesn't totally negate that an AMI may be occurring, but um, it does reduce the chances. The next uh, on the list is it, that it is described as positional. So that is um, like a 25% decrease, I believe. Yeah, 25% decrease if they describe it as positional. Of course, that points to um, pericarditis. And that's kind of like, a, first of all, it's a somatic pain. So it'll be very specific. And uh, it will be like leaning forward makes it worse. Leaning back makes it worse, that sort of thing. Uh, described as sharp. And this goes back into that whole... Um, visceral versus somatic thing. So if they say it's very, very sharp pain versus like a pressure or a diffuse pain, that should reduce your index of suspicion for uh, ACS in this patient. If it's reproducible with palpation, that uh, also reduces it by about 25%. So um, if you push on the patient's chest and they say it makes it worse, um, that's um, a good indicator that you can reduce your index of suspicion. You never wanna eliminate your index of suspicion for ACS, but it should reduce it. Um, if it's uh, in an inframary location, which I don't even know what that means, um, but that has a slight reduction, um, not very big at all, 0.8, which I actually don't even have it on a list here, but it does um, slightly change uh, the probability that it would be an ACS event and not associated with exer exertion. So if the chest pain is not associated with exertion whatsoever, it reduces um, the probability very, very slightly. Now I have a list of things that uh, increase the likelihood of an a that your patient is suffering an AMI. And I'll start with the most significant one, radiation to right arm or shoulder. So that has a positive likelihood ratio of 4.7%, or 4.7, which uh, I don't actually have on my list, but it's between 30 and 45%. It increases your chances that that patient is having an AMI. 
The next one is radiation to both arms or shoulders. Um, that's around another 30% uh, increase in index of suspicion. If it's asso associated with exertion, um, we're looking at an increase in 15%. Radiation to the left arm, which is kind of repetitive because we just did right arm. Oh, okay, no, the first one was right arm. If it radiates to the left arm, it increases your index of suspicion by less than the right arm. Um, 2.3%, or sorry, 2.3 is the index ratio, so that's another 15%. Uh, associated with diaphoresis, um, 2.0 index suspicion that increases, or 2.0 of uh, positive likelihood ratio that increases it by 15% uh, for uh, the chances that it's ACS. Um, and then there, the last of these ones are all 1.9, 1.8, 1.3. So like, yeah, these are all like increased by 15% for uh, chances that it's ACS. So associated with nausea and vomiting, uh, worse than previous angina or similar with previous or similar to a previous um, sorry worse than previous angina or similar to previous myocardial infarction and then if they describe it as a pressure again relating back to that visceral versus somatic um, those visceral versus somatic issues um, I think that's pretty much it for what Tintinelli says for that relates to like the EMS world um, some other causes of acute chest pain, um, obviously pulmonary embolism is in there, uh, pneumonia, spontaneous, pneumothorax, pericarditis, pleurisy, slipping rib syndrome, uh, pericardial catch syndrome, which I've never heard of, uh, costochondritis, which is just like an inflammation of the intercostal muscles in the ribs, like where they connect via cartilage. Um, intercostal nerve syndromes, fibromyalgia, um, and then typical exertional angina, atypical non-exertional angina, uh, unstable angina, acute myocardial infarction, aortic dissection, um, pericarditis, esophageal reflux or spasm, and esophageal rupture, uh, mitral valve prolapse. It's important to note that um, under visceral pain in this list, um, it has aortic dissection, which is a big one for us. Um, just remember that's obviously, uh, it is pain that starts in a vascular system. So it's going to have multiple entry points into your spinal cord. And thus, uh, the patient's going to have like a very diffuse description. So I think the take home here is that like, for the most part, if they have uh, like a visceral pain, that should increase uh, your index of suspicion and it should raise a lot of red flags that this patient may be suffering a more serious ailment um, than if they had a somatic pain. Um, and what else is in here? I think Tintinelli says, yeah, I think I said this earlier, uh, acute myocardial infarction pain, uh, like uh, STEMI or non-STEMI usually resolves only with aggressive intervention. Whereas uh, angina pain can resolve with rest or nitroglycerin. Um, another interesting thing that they say in here is a Mobitz 2 block is usually associated with an, associated with an anterior, anterior AMA and may lead to a complete heart block. Anterior and or inferior injury may lead to a complete heart block. So that's kind of neat if you see a Mobitz 2. Um, definitely raises your index of suspicion for an AMA. And uh, I think that is it for Tintinelli's. It is. So the last thing I'm just going to go over is um, 
under the protocols, there is uh, notes. And I always learn a lot out of the notes. Uh, I think they're definitely worth going over every once in a while for all of our protocols. Um, a lot of it is gonna repeat what Tintinelli said, so I'm not really gonna go over a ton of it. Um, yeah, stuff like the following patient groups are more likely to present with atypical signs and symptoms. Elderly, which I don't think I mentioned, but women, diabetics, and uh, of course, young adults who abuse cocaine or other sympathomimetic drugs. Um, the notes under AHS, they don't recommend you following the ACS protocol, which I've definitely done. I've uh, had young adults who have abused cocaine and I'd follow the ACS protocol um, and the sympathomimetic protocol, and you're not supposed to do that. Um, it also doesn't recommend that you treat the um, uh, anxiety and agitation that can occur as a result of ischemic chest pain. Don't treat that. Um, optimal treatment of this condition is effectively managing the ACS syndrome. Do not administer benzos um, or sedatives uh, to this population. So if you have someone with chest pain, just treat the chest pain. Or sorry, I got that mixed up. Uh, young adults who abuse cocaine or sympathomimetic drugs, uh, you want to treat the root cause there. So you want uh, to treat the, them as a sympathomimetic overdose, not as an ACS, versus anxiety and agi agitation. You want to treat uh, the ACS only. Sorry, my mistake there. Uh, <clears throat> just some more differential diagnoses that they go over. I'd recommend reading through them. Um, there's a, a box that they have here that has like process, location, quality, severity, timing. And again, just uh, look at that like sharp versus like diffuse, uh, somatic versus visceral, and that will really help us uh, differentiate between um, a lot of different conditions. Um, it has life-threatening, potential life-threatening, and less serious. Life-threatening, I'll just quickly go over again, aortic dissection, acute pericardial effusion and tamponade, and acute pulmonary embolism and tension pneumothorax. Um, Interventions, I think I already went over all of these. Vascular access is mandatory in patients receiving nitrate therapy. Um, it does say one dose of nitro can be administered concurrently while obtaining IV access. So that's something that I think a lot of people are, have uh, gotten from school that um, you need an IV access before you give your first dose of nitro. Incorrect, we can give one dose um, while we're starting an IV and then uh, we always wanna go in the left arm and a second IV is best practice if we can. Um, do not use the right arm, of course, and take the uh, and it says tape the catheter slash administration set or saline lock in such a manner that the hospital can easily change administration sets as necessary. Um, it goes over some ECG placement, but I cannot uh, do that just over a podcast because um, I can't show anything on this. Um, goes over a bunch of ECG stuff. Um, I guess the last thing that I'm going to go over here is infarct imposters. Um, there's three of them that AHS goes over, um, and I've always kind of forgotten these, but there's an easy way to memorize. There, the, the three impostors are left ventricular hypertrophy, um, pericarditis, carditis, and bundle branch block. So left ventricular hypertrophy, there's a super easy way to memorize it. Uh, pericarditis is easy to memorize in general, and bundle branch block, um, I think you just, most people know it, but I'll go over it anyways. So I'll start with left ventricular hypertrophy. Um, it may cause ST elevation that mimics acute coronary syndrome. Left ventricular hypertrophy uh, results in enlarged left uh, in an enlarged left ventricle, which increases the amplitude, but not the width of the QRS. So it increases the height, 
not how wide it is, um, the amplitude increases due to an increased electrical activity. One of the criteria to determine left ventricular hypertrophy is voltage criteria. So the voltage criteria is uh, the following, and then I'll give you a super easy way to memorize it, one that you'll never forget, I promise. Um, step one, you look at V1 and V2, so we're only looking in the chest leads. So the first two chest leads contiguously, and determine which has the deepest S wave. Determine the depth of the S wave in millimeters. So what is the S wave? That'll be uh, like the deepest spike pretty much, you, yeah. Um, and then you look at five and six and determine which has the tallest R wave. So you determine the height of the R wave in millimeters um, and then you add both measurements. So if the combined total is 35 millimeters or greater, um, voltage criteria is met for left ventricular hypertrophy. So the way I memorize this is you look at V1, uh, it's, I say one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, so you're looking at V1 and V2, and you're looking for three, the three, five is the 35 millimeters or greater, and then uh, five, six. So, sorry, three, four, and then five, six. Three, four is like the 34 millimeters is the normal, uh, within the normal limit. So 35 millimeters or greater um, is above it. So you're looking at V1 and V2, look for the deepest S wave. V5 and V6, look for the tallest R wave, and then you're looking for uh, 34, uh, if it's within 34 millimeters or less, um, that's normal, 35 millimeters or greater, so um, I don't know if that makes sense the way I'm explaining it, but yeah, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, the 3, 4 in the middle, or the 1 and the 2 stands for um, where you're looking for the S wave, the deepest S wave, V5 and the 6 out of the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 is where you're looking for the tallest R wave, and then the um, three and the four in the middle is um, the normal ranges for those two combined totals. Uh, yeah, so that's the first um, imposter. The second imposter is pericarditis. And I think most people know this one as well. Um, um, one of the first clues of pericarditis in the ECG is that ST elevation does not follow a normal pattern or coronary artery distribution. So the ST elevation in pericarditis is um, due to the pericardium being inflamed, uh, and that's why the elevation doesn't follow any normal order. Um, the ST elevation is not anatomically contiguous but diffuse. The ST segment normally has an upward concave appearance um, with the J point notching seen in some leads. As well, look for no reciprocal changes, ST depression in v AVR and PR segment depression in lead two, and uh, concave appearance, what it says earlier. So the ST segment normally has an upward concave appearance. Um, concave will just mean it's kind of bending upwards in the ST segment. So you have that concave appearance, J point notching seen in some leads, and you look for no reciprocal changes, ST depression in AVR and PR segment depression in lead two. The ones that I've seen of pericarditis, it's, it's literally just like kind of a global ST elevation or ST changes, um, and it's it's pretty much a dead giveaway. You look at the ECG and you're like, this doesn't make sense, and that should point to pericarditis. Um, and the final one is a is a bundle branch block. Um, the the best way to think about a bundle branch block, uh, left bundle branch block in specific, a right bundle branch block won't obscure the ECG signs of an MI whatsoever. So if you see a right bundle branch block, you still just take the ST segment elevation as it is. A left bundle branch block, though, always think of a steering wheel. So um, 
you start at uh, the the junction point of this of the uh, wave. I always remember you start at the junction point and work to your left, um, the same way that you hold onto a steering wheel and and move your hand to the left when you're driving. So you start at the J point, your junction to the steering wheel, um, and you move to the left. And that the way that the um, wave terminates, if it's to downwards, it would be the same way you pulled your your uh, your turn signal. So you'd pull the turn signal left and that's a left bundle branch block. If it's upwards, that would be you pulling your uh, turn signal upwards and that's a right bundle branch block. So it's that easy. Um, the, the caveats to this whole thing are uh, evidence of a supraventricular origin. So you need a sinus P wave, atrial fibroflutter, uh, or junctional inverted P waves. And you need a wider QRS. How wide does the QRS need to be? 0.12 seconds or greater. And uh, what's a better time than to go over what the, the big box and the little uh, boxes mean? If we look at uh, the biggest box on, a, on an ECG, there's, there's three boxes essentially. The, the very biggest one is one second in time. Um, the the mid, medium sized box is 0.2 seconds. And the, the very smallest box um, is uh, 0.04. So when we say uh, how, wi how wide is a wide QRS, quote unquote, 0.12 seconds or greater, that's three tiny little boxes. So 0.04 times three equals 0.12 seconds or greater. That's what qualified as, as a widened QRS. So the left bundle branch obscures the ECG's findings of uh, acute anterior MI. Um, if signs and symptoms are consistent with ACS, we presume it's a new left bundle branch block and Lysister cath lab may still be on the table for this patient. The inferior lateral MI can be identified despite the presence of a left bundle branch box. So this really only affects um, septal and anterior leads um, and a right bundle branch block again does not obscure any findings. You should just look at the ECG ST segment elevation as you normally do. Um, that's pretty much it um, for what AHS wants you to know as far as um, STEMI infarct and postures. So I'd say that that's probably one of the, the least known things that a, a lot of medics have don't uh, know a lot about, but uh, I think we should because um, scanning ECGs for ST segment elevation is uh, one of the cores of our jobs. So knowing uh, what impostures there are out there is extremely important, especially with um, the addition of the VHR protocol. Um, we really don't want to be sending left bundle branch blocks to a cardiologist and waking up at 3 a.m. I think it makes us look bad a lot of the time. <laughs> I would be mad if I was a cardiologist and something as simple as a left bundle branch block got sent to me at 3 a.m. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's everything. Um, it's a pretty easy protocol, but uh, a lot of heart attacks kill people, so it's important to be good at detecting them. And, uh, and to be doing our 12 leads often and early. Um, it's important to remember that heart attacks are the number one killer in North America still. So um, we play a major role in that. And uh, yeah, it's important to uh, review these, specifically this protocol, and uh, ask the right questions and, and move quickly. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, I will be putting another one out in about a week here. Hopefully these will be... Uh, weekly things, and yeah, that is it.